HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. Happy Monday to everybody out there, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. My co-host is Sophie Schlesinger, and today we are extremely excited to be talking about the role of cheese in uh, still life painting. Uh, Summer school at Cutting the Curd. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be learning, exactly, Um, and particularly um, the still lifes that were done in 17th century Holland. Um, And with us, we are very, very happy to have Julie Hochstrasser, who is the Associate Professor of Art History at the University of Iowa and the author of Still Life and Trade in the Dutch Golden Age. Thanks so much for being on the show, Julie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I have to say, I first found out about about you and, and your um, and your still life and, and painting exploits from a, a customer of mine. Um, her name is uh, is Amanda, and she I think took one of your classes in Cleveland. And she was like, "Oh my gosh, this woman is fascinating. You have to find her and have her on your radio show." Um, oh, for heaven's sake! I was wondering how that happened. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, glad to hear they learned something in the classes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, well, I guess um, I'd love to start by talking a little bit about you and your background and how you came to focus on um, on seventeenth century Dutch painting. Okay, sure. Um, 
When I did my Ph.D. in art history at Berkeley, I wrote my dissertation on 17th century Dutch still life painting, and um, many of these are tables laid with delicious spreads of food, including great stacks of cheeses. <laughs> Dutch inventories called them banketjes, banquets, or ontbijtjes, breakfast pieces. And uh, so there, there hadn't been a lot written about them at the time, and, and um, that was the beginning. <laughs> Now, can you tell us, because I, I actually, I was an art student before I got into the world of cheese. I, I was more of a studio art person, um, but definitely took my fair share of art history classes. And I just find this all so fascinating. Um, can you give us a little bit of background on Dutch art and what was going on in Holland at the time that made their paintings so singular? Sure. Well, this was, you know, right at the beginning of the 17th century was the beginning of the Dutch Golden Age, a real moment of prosperity in their culture. And uh, still life painting as a genre actually arose also right at that moment when um, the prosperity of the country was really growing. Um, so uh, there's a really interesting correlation there between, you know, what appears in the pictures, um, many, many things that are commodities, valuable commodities of Dutch trade, and this prosperity that was generated by Dutch trade. And the conventional interpretation of those pictures had always been that they moralized against luxury or excess, you know, based on moralizing emblem books of the time. But these pictures are so lusciously painted that that explanation just didn't seem quite right. It didn't tell the whole story. Um, so I decided to investigate the role of these foods in Dutch daily life to see what other meanings that might suggest, and I made some interesting discoveries. <laughs> well, um, I cannot wait to, to dig in really um, deeply to that. Um, but I just thought also it would be interesting for our listeners um, to I was doing a little bit of research before um, the show today, and um, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, of course, and I'm probably you know I'm probably missing pieces of the puzzle. But up until this point, um, the whole genre of still life was kind of something foreign to painting. Traditionally, pictures had been more of um, either religious um, bent or sometimes uh, commissioned portraits for important people. Um, but isn't it right that um, I don't know this this whole genre of still life was something very new to the art world? That's exactly right, yeah. Objects appeared in the context of other pictures, like religious pictures. You know, there'd be a Last Supper, which was a religious scene, but it would have food items in it. But to focus just on the food items was something new and different, and so that really emerged right at that moment. And so that's why the, the traditional interpretation linked it to that religious past. But what's interesting over the course of the 17th century is that, you know, that sort of fades into the background and other, um, you know, other meanings uh, emerge. And, and that's what I got interested in was what, what other kinds of understanding uh, Dutch daily life might give us. And isn't it also true that, um, you know, the, the Golden Age was preceded by a pretty long and nasty war um, involving, you know, various religions. And so people were maybe even trying to get away from that a little bit. They were kind of, you know, um, I don't know. I also I, I remember reading that, you know, Holland at the time was one of the most tolerant and kind of diverse cultures of the entire world at the beginning of the 17th century. Um, and so I just find it very interesting that, yeah, they chose to kind of 
go away from the religious aspects of their paintings and focus more on on things that you know were more tied to daily life yeah i'm always reminded of you know how delicious these paintings are i i get busy you know studying about the social and cultural history and then students look at the pictures and say oh this is making me hungry <laughs> and it reminds me that yeah i i do think that um people at the time you know found pleasure in them and also took great pride in you know the kinds of things that were pictured that were really significant to the dutch economy like cheese actually is one of those <laughs> Yeah, I was I was going to ask if you could touch on that a little bit further. I was actually earlier this morning at the New York Public Library reading your book and um, saw you know a, a little section about how cheese was one of the the first foods um, portrayed that possibly didn't have religious meaning tied behind it, and and it was about economics and and bounty and what was happening agriculturally. Um, are there any other foods that that were painted that were like that or what what else kind of can cheese tell us in these paintings about the the society at the time yeah well cheese was really considered one of the pillars of their economy and there are a lot of sayings from the time that attest to this which i love you know holland is the kasmerk van europa um holland is the cheese market of europe or geen lekker de banker dan hollandse kaas no tastier banker than dutch cheese or Kaas Holland's brood, Kaas Holland's rijkdom, uh, cheese Holland's bread, cheese Holland's riches. So they're really telling us, you know, how how important it was. And right, there were other other foods as well that are pictured um, in the still life that that had uh, important roles to play in trade. So spices like pepper um, that brought huge profits. Um, and, uh, Tobacco was a popular new commodity from the New World, and their paintings focused around that. So lots of, lots of other examples, too. Wow. And so let me ask, who, who was painting these still lifes? Who were the artists um, that were sort of most prominent, and um, who were their teachers if this was a new genre? How did they come up with it and develop it? That's an interesting question. Um, there was a real circle of painters in Harlem, especially. Um, so Floris van Schoten is one, um, and there's a nice example of his in the Koninklijk Museum for Schone Kunsten in Antwerp, for example, with a big stack of cheeses, you know, uh, in a banquet piece like that. Um, Floris van Dyck did even more elaborate ones with, you know, fancier tablecloths and, and more expensive tableware. Um, he's got a nice picture in uh, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Um, Peter Kloss was, did a lot of pictures with a basket of cheeses, um, and then sometimes even with a little dish of butter stacked on top of that. Uh, and Clara Peters was a woman painter, um, actually from Antwerp, but we think she may have visited up in the northern Netherlands as well, um, because she also did stacks of cheeses, um, and uh, she actually made some really important contributions to the development of the new genre of still life. She did some of the first banquet pieces and some of the first, you know, game pieces, flower pieces, and so on, so... We're actually looking at one of her pieces right now, uh, right in front of us from your from your book, um, oh, Still good. Life with yeah. Cheeses and a Pitcher, which I love because I just love the idea of these two huge, you know, wedges of cheese and then butter piled on top. Like, right. here it is. This is so... <laughs> 
lovely and delicious. And, and, pret- we and made pretzels it. And pretzels. in the front, yeah. which make it just right. even better. Well, and I'm glad you can see it in the book because that's, that's in a, a lot of, I think most of her paintings are in private collections, so they're hard to see. But you can get a color reproduction in my books. You get a good look. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we hope to post it on, we have a, um, a sort of blog and Tumblr site going um, for our show. And um, if, it's, uh, if it's all right with you, we'd love to put it up there so people can see what we're talking about after the show. Okay, we might have to ask permission from the owner, which I'm happy to do. <laughs> oh, sure. No, absolutely. We don't want to step on anybody's toes. No, yeah, he no, was no. very kind to give me permission, permission to reproduce it. So I think that's what we should do first. But yes, that would be great. <laughs> you can see I'm like a cheesemonger. I'm not I'm not versed in the in the finer points <laughs> of uh, art allocation or, you know. <laughs> um, but so if we could talk about the painting, though, for a second, it's really fascinating because there's a wheel of cheese that looks like a Gouda, probably a wax wrapped Gouda. And then right. there's a cheese in front of it that looks quite black. Yeah, or dark green, at least in mm-hmm. my uh, my reproduction of it. And uh, I've seen that identified as probably a mature Adam, but you are the cheese expert, so maybe this is my chance to see if you think <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I was fascinated by it. I've never really seen a cheese like it, although I, you know, I have no doubt that that um, that they're out there because there are some really gnarly, crazy looking old cheeses <laughs> out there. <laughs> And then the little little wedge up on top um, was identified as probably a sheep's cheese, you cheese or something. Mm. Does that sound right? Mm. Yeah. Well, it looks <laughs> this is um, a good chance to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the 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 gouda is the one that really stands out, um, and then of course the butter on the top. Um, right, it, and you can even see there's a mark where a plug went in to test it, just mm-hmm. the way they still do in the cheese market in Alkmaar, if you've ever been there. <laughs> they sink a big plug into the big wheel of cheese to take a little sample out, a core sample to test. Oh, sadly, I have never been to that market. That would be a real thing to see. Cutting the curd. I mean, it's a great, great trip. Yeah, they have, you know, these big rockers that carry the wheels of cheese on, uh, they're strapped to their shoulders by rope, so they, they bring those in, and then they've got wagon loads full, and then the gentlemen in their suits come in and put the plug in and test them. It's, it's great fun, and Alkmaar's just gorgeous. It really gives you a taste of the 17th century, you know, because there are a lot of uh, old buildings all gathered around the square there oh that cool. sounds so nice and i just love too that these painters you know really had to have kind of a deep knowledge about cheese i mean they're painting different varieties and and styles and you know showing where the cheesemakers had had taken a sample and they've, they've got a pretty strong knowledge base of of what they're painting yeah you can really see how incredible their observation was of of uh, the subtleties. I mean, if you look at that picture we were just talking about, around the edges, it's a little bit darkened as if it's starting to dry out. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, she just looks so closely and observes so accurately and renders it so well. And that's what, you know, 17th century Dutch painters were just known for. (laughs) The stack of the, you were talking about the little dish of butter stacked on top. Right. That's kind of uh, an interesting controversy because Supposedly, um, according to some popular lore, it was considered uh, 
excessive, you know, to eat cheese and butter at the same time. Supposedly, Prince Moritz, who was the Stadthouder at the time, kind of like the, the president virtually, you know, of the country, got in trouble for being so presumptuous as to eat cheese and butter at the same time. And there was a play at the time that said, Saufel op saufel, nimmt man op saufel. Um, dairy upon dairy takes one to the devil. <laughs> and so that would be the sort of emblematic, you know, moralizing interpretation of it. But I looked at all these um, health manuals written by physicians at the time uh, to try and get more detail about dietary lore of the period. Mm. And uh, that's where I made some really interesting discoveries because they don't talk about that as being a bad thing at all. In fact, they, you know, talk about cheese as a really sturdy, solid, good thing to eat, and there are some other interesting details about, you know, how to eat it that, that actually get replicated in the painting. So so that source, you know, gave me a different perspective on it. Yeah, and I, I think I might have read something as well that butter even had medicinal uses um, and, and was also considered, you know, a, a highly nutritious food, which is kind of great <laughs> they knew yeah. what they were talking yeah, about yeah they knew <laughs> one, one of he had all these little stories in this book and one of them was about a cat that got sick and they fed it butter you know to to uh to heal it and yeah there are all kinds <laughs> of interesting little time. tidbits <laughs> <in this book. laughs> wow well so well one thing that I, I don't know i was just thinking you know you're saying that cheese is a sturdy product and it sparked this thought um I was reading a little bit about, um, you know, Dutch still lifes and part of, um, part of many still lifes is kind of this idea that there's uh, an element of decay or a passage of time or that nothing really stays, you know, um, forever and humans, you know, life and death and all this. Um, but then there seems to be sort of a counterpoint to that because I don't really see anything like that in, in the paintings of cheeses and, also, I feel like with that notion of, of, of trade and kind of empire, you know, do they, are they kind of saying with these paintings, like, you know, we have longevity, like we're going to, you know, sort of be in this position of power for a long time? Does, does the cheese speak to that at all or, or not, not so much? Well, certainly, you know, the fact that it is a product that even already in the 17th century the Dutch were famous for, you know, um, would be a moment of of pride at the time. Um, I mean, as far as uh, how long it would last, it's funny, there is a one emblem in an emblem book from 1624, Johan de Brun, with a, a a moldy cheese actually with maggots crawling in it and he uses it as an mm -hmm. emblem for um the the literal translation is too sharp makes jagged so um you know literally he's talking about if the cheese is too old you know it, it gets maggots in it but it's sort of a <laughs> symbolic way of saying uh, of talking about um great minds that go sour and produce bad ideas you know that's a sort of symbolic thing but you look that's the emblem you look at these pictures and it's as you say i mean these are you know gorgeous uh cheeses that look delectable and um and the other foods as well so it's you know it's much more appealing than than that and actually that same picture if you look really closely at the jug just beside the cheeses mm -hmm. um it's really hard to make out but this is clara painters this woman painter and she's got a reflection of herself in the lid of the jug 
I saw that. Uh, that is earlier. so incredible. So cool. <laughs> yeah, as if she she is telling you, you know, I may not last, but my picture is going to last, and yeah. you know, here's my signature, and here's the way I I perpetuate myself in a way. <laughs> yeah, subtle, subtle, but uh, effective. <laughs> <laughs> Now, let me ask you this. Now, was cheese something that was commonly available to all Dutch people, or was it kind of more of a luxury good? This was something that was was widely available and kind of the great leveler, you know, because, uh, again, you know, the physicians, another one of them said that uh, butter and cheese is part of what could make you, you know, stout but strong and live a happy <laughs> life and uh, that you really um, owe Jan Case, which is Case kind of sounds like Kaas, Dutch cheese, was the, the sort of nickname for uh, a good, solid Dutchman. And um, there was a, another poem written about um, Case, who eats just bread and cheese, um, is happy and satisfied and he's a good worker versus uh, uh, Tice, who eats partridges, which are, you know, delicate <laughs> and of little nutrition, and, and he's never satisfied. So it was kind of the moral being, you know, cheese was the good thing, the solid domestic product that was healthy and good for you to eat. That's <laughs> nice. It's like it's a better version of calling someone a good egg, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, you're a good yeah. cheese. You're a good piece of cheese. I think of an analogy. And that could be it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, well, and so... I don't know. I'm just thinking about, of course, you know, um, just thinking about the trade aspect of things again, you know, Dutch cheeses certainly did travel a lot. Um, you know, I have a, a shop in New York City in this old public market on the Lower East Side, which is um, now um, home to a lot of Puerto Rican and Dominican businesses. Mm. And um, in the market, they sell um, little balls of wax wrapped Edom style cheese called Bola Holandese. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Which I just find fascinating because, of course, in, in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, there's no native cheese tradition because it's too hot there to really make cheese. Um, and, and so I feel like, you know, that is the sort of contemporary after effect of this, uh, you know, colonial period where people's tastes have literally been altered over the centuries. And now that's part of their diet as well. Yeah, very true. Interesting. Because, of course, in the 17th century, you know, the Dutch traveled literally around the globe and, and had a number of, you know, colonies in far-flung places, and they did transport cheese there and also, you know, develop taste for foods abroad that they brought back with them. And, and um, it really was a much more globalized period than we realized, but it was certainly the roots of, you know, the globalization today. <laughs> yeah. Now, is there anywhere else um, that uh, that you know of where you know these traditions really took root? Dutch food traditions, or specifically cheese tradition? Huh. Um, well, certainly Dutch culture is still really in evidence in a lot of different corners of the globe. Um, the Caribbean, you know, where they were active in the 17th century already. Uh, in you know, it's the Netherlands Antilles, I mean, uh, Aruba, Bonaire, Curaçao, you see a lot of architecture that's reminiscent of Dutch architecture, and then you can also get Dutch products, um, other things as well. And um, Indonesia, of course, where they were for a long time, um, and South Africa, I mean, all, oh, even uh, 
this is a funny one, in Japan, you know, in uh, Deshima was this little island off the coast of Nagasaki where um, they were the only country allowed to trade with Japan for some 250 years, but they had to stay on that little island, um, kind of restricted to there. And, uh, and the Japanese have reconstructed that island in detail and also even have this huge theme park called Bosch, which is the name of the royal palace in the Netherlands. And it's this <laughs> reconstruction of a lot of major monuments in in holland um i mean almost to scale you know and of course anywhere like that where you've got this sort of uh transportation of dutch culture you also have you know they have uh, they make pulfridges little dutch sort of uh pancakey things and and they sell dutch cheese and and dutch delftware and yeah so uh Anywhere, anywhere, uh, Holland is <laughs> is present. There seems to be cheese as one of their, you know, still one of their most famous products. <laughs> wow, wow! And so, well, I, I was reading a little bit about um, about you on the on the University of Iowa website, and um, it was mentioning that you have a current research project, um, which involves a lot of traveling and investigating um, art in, in in sites where the Dutch. Um, the Dutch were. Can you tell us um, more about that? Is that how you found out about this island in Japan, say? Yeah, that's right. That's that's uh, how I got involved with it. I had written this book on still life and trade and then got interested in other kinds of art and visual culture that uh, might reflect the, um, the cultural exchange between the Dutch and these various other um, places that they traveled and traded. And so over the last seven years or so, I've been to a dozen or so key sites of Dutch trade all around the world, in Asia and Africa and the Americas. And they have lots of photographs and lots of um, video footage, and I'm uh, putting together a website. Uh, so <laughs> stay tuned for that. <laughs> That's in the, in the works. I'm actually first finishing uh, the next book that follows after the Still Life and Trade book, the companion piece is Still Life at Home, and that's the one that has a lot of the um, details about Dutch diet that I discovered from these um, physicians' manuals. Um, so, so stay tuned for that too. <laughs> yeah, I definitely will. Well, I feel like it's such an interesting thing, especially right now, because a lot of people demonize the kinds of you know fats that are found in cheeses and butters and and. And I just feel like <laughs> I feel like it's got to be wrong just because I love it so much. But now we be- can now we can cite history and and tell them. What's yeah, what? what's funny is you know he wouldn't necessarily give the same reasons for it, but um, but a lot of the traditions are reminiscent. So you know he says um, he recommends olives and cheese to strengthen the stomach and to settle the foods down. To spice neither to set the and. You know, sure enough, there's this beautiful still life by Floris van Dyck with this great stack of cheeses right at its center and this dish of olives right in front of it, just as if he's, you know, illustrating that custom. Um, Or he said one should eat salt at the start of the meal to open the stomach and then cheese last in the meal to close the stomach again. And there are a bunch of paintings by Floris van Schoten um, where you can almost is if you can read it left to right, there's a salt cellar standing just beside a big stack of cheeses. Wow. 
Wow, that is so so neat. Yeah, you should write a new a new diet book. Yeah, it will be a, <laughs> be a sensation. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so who who were these pictures painted for? Who ended up purchasing these pictures, and where did they end up? Were they largely for private homes, or um, yeah, they were. But actually, that's another one of the things that really kind of changed um, with the 17th century because. The rise of an art market, per se, is something that really happened um, in the Netherlands um, in the 17th century. Before that, you know, most patrons were either royalty or the church, and uh, because the Dutch were involved with this revolt against uh, the against Spain, uh, against Catholic Spain, and this was the northern Netherlands where they wanted to be Protestant. They didn't want to have, um, you know, big altarpieces in their churches anymore. That was part of the whole, you know, Reformation movement. And so in place of those um, religious images, that's where these new genres of still life and landscape and um, genre scenes of daily life emerged. And uh, it was just painted for this brede middenstand, this broad middle class that was really becoming more and more prosperous in its own right. It was really the the biggest sort of middle class anywhere in Europe at that time, and they were making uh, enough money to be able to buy these pictures. So they were um, in private homes and uh, usually hanging in the fourcomer, the front room of the house where, you know, people who came to the home could see them, but they didn't have museums in those days. So it was really just private homes and, and private collections where they would be seen. Wow. Wow. And I guess you sort of, um, un, you know, going off on a different tangent, but something I realized we didn't talk about yet was just the idea of texture in these paintings. Um, the, the genre of still life was kind of designed in a way, it seems, to show off the artist's prowess when it comes to those kinds of things. Um, could you talk a little bit about about that and its role? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's where I think, you know, these renderings like we were talking about of being able to distinguish even between different kinds of cheese is, is really a good example of that. Um, there was a an oration given by Phillips Ungel, who was a painter at the time where he was talking about what was important for painters to be able to do. And he talks about being able to distinguish between different kinds of metal, you know, gold or silver or pewter or copper and different kinds of fabrics, you know, velvet or satin or whatever. And and it's that kind of really, really um, sophisticated description that these painters cultivated and that they achieved um, I have a friend who teaches painting who calls the still life painters the heavyweights of the painting world to this day, you know, because they, they were so, so good at it. Yeah. <laughs> they make you make your mouth water just looking at them. Absolutely. And yeah, you think you could reach out and touch the lace tablecloths or yeah, grab those delicate yeah. glasses. And it's really, really incredible. Um, well, uh, unfortunately, we're almost out of time on the show today, but I, if people want to learn more about um, about your work, is there um, a current website where you have uh, certain things for, for people to come and see, or is that kind of in the works? Um, the website at the university, I think, has my CV on it, which has, you know, dozens and dozens of essays that I've written in different collections, different books and things, but uh, Still Life and Trade in the Dutch Golden Age is is the book, you know, that I 
I've written that is for sale on Amazon and still life at home in the Dutch Golden Age should be there soon. So <laughs> great. Well, that is. I'd love to hear what people think. Oh <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I personally, I know I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a copy of uh, of the Still Life and Trade immediately, and as soon as the Still Life at Home comes out, I will definitely pick that up too. It's been really fascinating talking with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All <laughs> <was> right. <laughs> I hope you. if you're in New York, you'll stop by the shop and say hello. At Saks will be cheesemongers. I would love to. <laughs> Thanks again. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. It's with great sadness that we mourn the loss of Ray Dieter, owner of the DBA Bars and co-host of Beer Sessions Radio. Ray made this studio brighter every Tuesday at 5 p.m. with his larger-than-life personality, charm, wit, charisma, and expertise. We hope the archives of Ray on our station will serve as some kind of window into the life of a man who meant so much to those he knew and those he didn't know. And on behalf of everybody here at Heritage Radio Network, we thank you, Ray. Um, and they've been doing that for many, many years. And how do they get that, that barrel of beer? Um, did you ever hear of a place called Beer Mountain? What I have that? not, actually. Beer Mountain is a place that I climb every once in a while to find barrels of beer um, for my customers. I go up there. I wear big, heavy boots. I carry a sled with me because there's snow and ice. And, uh, <laughs> and I go to the top of the mountain, and I bring back barrels and bottles of beer for the people at my bars. And that's, that's where I got it from, Beer Mountain. You're awesome, Ray. It's better for growing things. There's just more rain and more, more regular temperatures, not as harsh a winter. Sure. So it just became more economically viable to grow it there. Can I just make a statement? I want to apologize to everybody that asked me why hops weren't grown in New York State, because I've told everybody there was a hop light. <laughs> <laughs> I just pulled that out of my ass. So why did you open a bar in New Orleans? Well... <laughs> Everybody asked that question. The basic reason I opened a bar in New Orleans, um, down there, um, the, a, a bit, well, obviously, it's a drinking town. There's a lot of drinking town. It's also a culinary town. They have some of the best restaurants in the country down there, and uh, people told us we were crazy, bringing a good beer, good whiskey, good drinking concept down to New Orleans, because all the people wanted was, you know, huge-ass buds. And that's all well and fine, and there's a lot of fun to be had on Bourbon Street, but there's a lot of shit going on down there away from Bourbon Street. And uh, we opened up DBA in 2000, and uh, we had a, a slow beginning because we had a, a pretty good list, and people were like kind of intimidated. But once the restaurant people, the, the, the chefs, the, the service people in the restaurant industry kind of got wind that we were down there, and we had a great beer selection, we... We got filled up pretty fast. I mean, it worked out real well. And we opened our second place called Mimi's down there. And another aspect about it is down there, you know, a bar owner is a respected member of the community. We, we pay our taxes. We, we employ people. And we're part of the whole trade industry down there, the whole um, tourist industry. In New York City, we're not treated quite the same. And you know that as well as I speak. We're kind of treated as... Uh, 
we're, we're not a respected member of the business community as bar owners necessarily. So you like New Orleans? I love New Orleans. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. Ray Dieter, aka Bootsy Collins, was just on the air. Ray, what was it like in the old days? Did you have a band or something? Bootsy Collins, Ray Dieter, DBA. I, I, I play guitar a little bit, but uh, yeah, it was kind of boring. The beer business is a lot more fun, Jimmy. You're just too cool, man. I love you, man. <laughs> Ray, tell us a Tom Peters story. I know you've known him for years. Yeah, you know, I have known him for years, and all the stories that I have about Tom, I cannot tell you on the radio. How about a general beer theme story, like <laughs> okay, the first you. time you met him? How about that? Okay. The first time I met Tom, he was running a bar in Philadelphia called... Um, Copa 2. Copa 2. Copa 2, right. And uh, he was... I went down there. DBA was a brand new bar. We went down there, and uh, he was one of the most generous, wonderful guys. He's like, oh, DBA, I love you guys. Like, how did he hear about us? I have no idea. But he knew who we were, and he treated us like kings. And uh, free food, free drinks, so generous. And then I found out that he didn't own the place. <laughs> so it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense now. Um, if anyone's offering a course like that, it's a scam. It's, it's, <laughs> absolutely. I took a course at NYU about opening a bar, and it was just a fallacy. It was just ridiculous. They, they have no idea. Um, they have, it's, it's all about math, too. And, and the math they talk about is really fun, but it's really not pertinent to what you do on a day-to-day living. Um, yeah, we need beer. Can somebody right. open some beer? All right, up? I'm all over this. Give me a minute. Give me a My bottle. My glass is empty. <laughs> this is the first show we haven't been drinking beer nonstop. Right. Hey Ray, how are you? How was your weekend? Uh, you know, my New Year's was fine. Uh, I made a few bad choices, but you're supposed to. Um, that's just what it is. New Year's is about making bad decisions, um, and I did that. But it, all in all, okay. I, I lived through it. Like I say, we're the only brewery in the world. We have wooden oak casks. So yeah, we yeah, yeah, yeah. When are we going to get some keys? Yes. Well, well, I mean, that's. I mean, that, that's that's the reason. I mean, these these casks. We sell them. We sell them in England. You can't ship these things across the Atlantic Ocean. How about if we I mean, provide the casks? <laughs> even if we provi- we we do provide. The when casks. I say we, I mean by America. Well, I can- um, and by America, I mean Union. <laughs> union <laughs> Car- beer. Cask, cask beer done the traditional way, as we do it, has a shelf life of probably about a week after it. Um, after it's brewed Yeah but we after have some casks coming over here I know the Shelton Brothers bring some casks And I know that the United Nether Importer Brings yeah, some that, casks I mean that's fantastic and They're, they're, they're well, fine I'm really glad that you appreciate You know that's that's great for you that you No have pressure cast beer. <laughs> But I mean that's I mean to be to be brutally honest The way that we do things at Sam Smith Is that we are very very traditional and, mm-hmm. and that's that's what our what, what we believe our success is based on is sticking to our sticking to what well, we I mean, do but best if ipa was made to be sent to india and that's before airplanes and big steamships i mean if you really want to be traditional you can like you know we can get a donkey cart to come around south of africa or whatever <laughs> on a tramp steamer and bring it over but i think i think it's time for samuel yeah. adam samuel well, sorry samuel smith <laughs> to be Available in cask occasionally for special events in in New York. Not, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the beers in England. I mean, uh, most of the breweries, the old old school English ale breweries, would make a barley wine, but it wasn't. They weren't proud of them. It was something that they kept under the shelf, and it was something that like the old guy with yeah. a really greasy red woolly cap in the corner yeah. would get a little glass and it was like he would get a little bottle of it. It was about six ounces, and he poured into his ale. Yeah, because no nobody would sit there and pound. Right, barley wine like we do here in America, right. yeah. and that barley wine that he was pouring into it was his fortification. Ale, yeah, right. His ale yeah. was about three and a half percent. It was a yeah. session beer, and the barley wine back in the day was probably about six percent, six and a half percent. Right, right. And and he didn't want to be seen drinking that because 
only old drunks drank barley wine. <laughs> but that's a whole old, old profile. Little nip. Yeah. Yeah. And now so he would do he would he would dip that little glass into into his into his ale and he would drink that. He'd sip that and quietly have a nice day. <laughs> Can't wait to be old. <laughs> <laughs>